1: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Writer, speaker, and immigration rights advocate Julissa Arce became well known after publishing a memoir about her experience working for Wall Street giant Goldman Sachs, even though she was undocumented. Now she's back with a new book about how Latinos should reject assimilation and reclaim our histories and identities. Some people say that I am ungrateful because this country has given me so much and that I should simply ride into the sunset with the bounty it has bestowed upon me, she writes. The truth is, I do have a lot, but I finally know how much it has cost me. We're talking assimilation, healing, and the future of the country after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So excited. We're joined this morning by Julissa Arce. She's got a new book out, You Talk Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. It follows her best-selling previous books, My Underground American Dream and Someone Like Me. She immigrated to the U.S. at 11 years old and was undocumented into her mid-20s, including some of her years on Wall Street. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the
1: show. So I wanted to start where a lot of immigrant stories start, and that's with parents. What what did your parents teach you about what coming to the U.S. was supposed to mean?
2: Yeah, so um, my mom and my dad came to the US when I was three years old, and then I joined them when I was 11. And and during that time, they would go back to Mexico to see me and and they would come back to the US and go back and forth. And eventually they started spending a lot more time in the US. And so I sort of started to gather my thoughts about what the United States was um, through the gifts that they brought me. Right. Like mm. I was the first kid uh, in like my whole town to have a Nintendo right? because oh, it was available here. <laughs> yeah. So I was, you know, all the kids came over and played and played at the house. Um, you know, my mom would bring me this like pink Barbie um backpacks and um and lunch boxes and so it's so to me the United States was this place where like all these amazing beautiful things uh, existed right uh, and also it was the place that took my parents away all the time
1: mm-hmm.
2: when wow. like and then when I finally joined them in the United States my mom explained the United States to me or my position in the United States as though I was visiting somebody's house. You know, when you visit someone's house, your you're best behavior, you, um, we have this word in Spanish called acomedida, like you're helpful, but it's more than helpful. It's, it's, it's more than that. Um, so so that's for a long time how I viewed the United States. It was someone else's house and I was a visitor and I should be so lucky to, to be here. And, and of course, as, 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 you, as you mentioned, um, you, know, you, you Sound Like a White Girl, my new book, um, is, is sort of a rejection of, of that idea.
1: Huh. So for you, assimilation means that sense of, of being in somebody else's house and, and trying to fit in, trying to make yourself a, a good visitor rather than a, a real resident or someone who belongs.
2: Right. Yeah. I think in many ways that is what assimilation feels like. And I think more than that, it's that this house is a house of white people. And, uh, and therefore, in order for me to fit into this, this visitor's house, I should act and talk and sound and aspire to be um, someone who is white, and I think that that's sort of the the most dangerous part about the way that we demand assimilation of immigrants. Because I think the unsaid part, when we tell people learn to speak English, assimilate to American culture, you know, we're not like. Every Latino who is an American is part, of, is, is part of American culture. Every Black person, an Asian person who is uh, American, their culture is also American. But when we ask immigrants to assimilate, we're not asking them to assimilate to those cultures or to that part of American culture. Um, and, and that's the idea that I sort of try to break down in, in, in my new book.
1: Yeah. You know, why don't you do read from a, a passage it's kind of a joyful passage which I, I like uh, getting to here at the top um it's when you're standing in front of a, a mirror looking at your reflection Can you like set up the passage a little bit and then and then go for it
2: yeah, so, so so the book is called You Sound Like a White Girl right? because there was a, a kid in high school who told me I sounded like a white girl. And at that moment, I took it as a compliment because I had been trying for so long to get rid of my accent, to enunciate words in a certain way. Um, and so here I talk about that. And then I talk about um, how I view my, my accent now. Um, so here it is. I stood in front of a mirror, saw my brown reflection, and tried to imagine the girl speaking back to me with someone white, someone whose words brought her pride and confidence. I cry when I think of that, Julissa. I want to hold her and tell her one day she'll laugh when she texts her friends, I'm going star crazy. And they write back, comadre, que es star crazy? Like, stir crazy, but more galactic? She'll respond, we can all be start crazy with a little herb from the earth and roll on the floor laughing so hard her tummy will hurt. My husband pokes fun at me whenever I make use of the wrong idiom or use the incorrect word in a sentence. He finds it endearing. My friend Carlos has a running list of all the things I say wrong and we joke about it over drinks in a pool in Palm Springs. In my accent, in my mistaken words, in my imperfect English, I have found laughter and joy.
1: So this has been part of reclaiming what you've lost. And I wanted to just ask d- directly: as you were kind of moving up through the ranks in the you know, highly elite world of Wall Street finance, what did you think you were you were losing along the way? Yeah,
2: I mean, I really went for it, right? I was like, yeah, I mean. I- <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try all the way to the top. Um, well, so it's exactly what you mentioned, right? That that Wall Street was not just a world so different than the one I grew up in. It was a very elite world, right? And in many ways, um, I, I, the, the the hardest parts about working on Wall Street were not the work or sort of the learning curve. It really was that I grew up so differently than most of my colleagues, right? So when they would talk about Going skiing to Aspen or spending summer vacations with their parents in Europe, or sailing trips to the Bahamas like none of those things registered and I couldn't take part in those conversations. Um, And so I very much you know I took up I took up skiing. which, by the way, it's a sport that I that I love and I wish so many more people would get would get to enjoy.
1: I've still never um, been. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, well, you know, I did have a bad skiing accident, but I've recovered and uh, and, and I'm back on the slopes. Um, but I think that, you know, I felt like there was all these small things about my culture that I had to give up in order to fit into that world. So, you know, a small example, I would I would never come to work wearing big hoop earrings um, or nail art on my on my nails there were times when I would get nail art done for the weekend and then you know had to take it off before I went back to work um and these are things that are part of my culture and and I and I really question in the book like who made up these rules that like pearl earrings are acceptable and that they are professional and it really goes back to a time when only wealthy people were able to wear pearls like real pearls right Mm -hmm. um And so I'd really just like start to question where do all these rules come from, who made them up and for whom? And there was a lot that I lost. um, I feel when I was working on wall street about my culture. And there were also times when I would simply have to, 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 to take comments. Um, Like I remember one time we, we had a product that uh, was investing in, in Latin American, in Latin American stocks. And, um, there was a suggestion that we send out a newsletter with a little sombrero on it. Oh, man. And yeah, exactly. But, but I was sitting there, you know, this young, this young person who is like afraid to be there because I'm undocumented. I'm not even supposed to be working there. And so I didn't have the confidence to sort of stand up to that and to, and to say something about that. And so, so, and so but then I would go home and I would feel horrible about the fact that I didn't stand up. That I didn't say anything. Um, and that is a very frustrating thing to have to to swallow those kinds of things all the time.
1: Man, I can imagine Cinco de Mayo in that office was oh my God. not no. a fun day. Please don't um, remind me. Yeah, <laughs> We're talking with Chulisa Arce, author, speaker, and immigration rights advocate about her latest book, You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. We'd love to hear from you. We know there's so many immigrants and children of immigrants in the Bay Area. What does assimilation mean to you? What do you think assimilation has cost you? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So like we were saying, you weren't just kind of moving up the ranks of American society. You were at the very top. You're making a ton of money. You are are working for some of the most sought after firms in the country. Also some of the most hated, but also the most sought yeah. after. When did you realize, like, assimil- I, I don't want to be here? And how did that get tied into sort of assimilation as a broken promise? Yeah.
2: So... I have to kind of go back a little bit and talk about my motivation for wanting to work on Wall Street. Right. So I was I was I grew up undocumented and I was able to go to college because the the, the laws in Texas changed that allowed me to do so. And I remember seeing this poster on campus that said I could make ten thousand dollars working on Wall Street for the summer. And I had no idea what Wall Street was. I but I I found out, you know, I did all this research. I found out I changed my major from marketing to finance. And my motivation was I am going to make as much money as I possibly can, both to take care of my family, which is like one of the biggest reasons that immigrant immigrants come to this country, right, to be able to to take care of our families. Um, And then the second thought that crossed my mind was if I have enough money then it won't matter if I'm undocumented because because money is power and I'll have it. And and so I went to go work on Wall Street with this idea. Right. And 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 also with the pressure that a lot of children of immigrants, um, first gen kids have, which is we have to make our parents sacrifice mean something we have to make we have to, to sort of pay them off. Um, and so we have this big pressure to sort of make it right to to make it in a corporate world, to have a good job, to have money. And so and so those were my motivations for going to work um, on Wall Street. And and in many ways, I accomplished all of those things. And money as, is power. As you mentioned it is <laughs> yeah. it really is. Um, and um, it wasn't so much that there was like one particular day, but when I decided, you know, assimilation is this horrible thing that I've gone that I've under that I've undertaken Um, it really was sort of a slow long process but I started questioning this idea of the American dream um, when my dad when my dad passed away I I was still undocumented living in New York City and my dad and the rest of my family had gone back to Mexico and I couldn't get on a plane to go Mm -hmm. be with my dad as he took his last breath and that was such a moment of dissolution and when i really started questioning this idea
1: we're talking with julissa arce author speaker and immigration rights advocate about her latest book you sound like a white girl the case for rejecting assimilation
0: i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for more after the break support for forum comes from san francisco opera
1: Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Julissa Arce, an author, a speaker, and an immigration rights advocate about her latest book, You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. Really curious to hear from people in the Bay Area, both Latinos and others, about their feelings about assimilation. What does it mean to you? And what do you think it's gained for you? What do you think it's cost you? The number is 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram are KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, before the break, you were sharing the, the story of not being able to be with your father because you wouldn't have been able to come back into the country if you'd gone mm-hmm. to see him in Mexico, and that being a break in your trajectory what what happened then as you started to really you know you said it was really a process this process of what became rejecting assimilation what did that actually look like for you
2: yeah so um yes after my dad passed away and i couldn't be there um it was this sort of uh frustration that you know I, i had all this money and I could, I could have bought a plane ticket, No, it, it, the, the plane ticket could have cost $10,000 and I could have afforded it and paid for it and gone to see him. But I still couldn't because of this really unfair immigration loss. And um, you know, eventually, I was able to get my green card a couple a uh, couple of years after that, and it was for it was the first time in my life where I could really ask myself, "What is it that I really want to do with my life?" Like, if if I didn't have all these pressures, um, now that I do have a green card and I can get any job that I want, I can take a break. I can go back and get another job after I take a break. I, that's really when I started to. Um, go through this process and start to really question the things that I believed um, for, for so long, it was, uh, you know, I sort of started to ask myself like where were Mexicans during this time? Because I was reading all these history books. I've always really loved history Mm -hmm. and I was reading all of these books where I just kept not finding myself in these books. Like I really was so hungry for literature that spoke about experiences like mine, because by the way, when I was growing up undocumented, we didn't talk about being undocumented. Mm-hmm. There was not, you know, young undocumented people shouting that they're unafraid um, and and unapologetic. Like, I so wish that I had had that, but I didn't. And so I was so hungry for for any kind of mirror that Mm -hmm. that showed me that I mattered that my story mattered and I just couldn't find it anywhere and so I really started to question um like where were Latinos and eventually I did start to find you know the deep long history of my people in this country a history that I very much believe would have kept me from um going through such great lengths to assimilate
1: Yeah, and you know, that history, uh, it sounds like we've been on on similar paths here, that history is really complex, you know, I mean, all these Mm -hmm. different countries and different groups within different countries and educational backgrounds and classes and and language groups and relationships to indigeneity, how did you kind of find your way to what was sort of like your version of your heritage as opposed to some, you know, very broad Latinidad or whatever it is that you might have? Come to,
2: yeah. So it's interesting. It's interesting that um, that's that, that that's how you ask the question because I I view it a little differently, mm-hmm. um, which is that yes, you know, all of us come from different countries. Some of us speak Spanish, some of us don't. Some of us are white, some of us are black, some of us are mestizos uh, who look indigenous, like I do, um, and it's all very complicated and complex. And the fact that there are Uh, some Mexican Americans who have been in the United States since before it was called the United States. And they're also very, very recent immigrants. Like all of this adds to the complexity of our experiences. And at the same time, I very much believe that there is a through line to our experiences and something that connects us. And I can't quite put a name on it or my finger on it, Mm -hmm. but there is that through line that connects us. And for me, you know, a lot of the history that I was learning about when I say my people, I mean Mexicans, um, in in this country, uh, you know, things like Supreme Court cases or court cases, um, it 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 really showed me that while there were specifically um, related to Mexican Americans, because because Mexican Americans. Um, are sort of like the longest Latino group in this country and and Puerto Ricans, right? Um, And then there were later waves of of immigrants from other Latin American countries. But these cases and how they were decided affects and affected not only Mexicans, but the broader Latino diaspora. Mm. Um, And so... Even though I was learning this very specific history about Mexicans and how Mexicans were segregated in schools because English was used as the as the reason to segregate us, or you know um, the equal protection um, clause did not apply to Mexicans um, for a long time, and then there was a Supreme Court case in 1954, or you know something that we're relitigating or potentially going to relitigate now with um, Greg Abbott in Texas saying that he wants to challenge that undocumented students should have access to public education, Um, even though those things. Um, specifically related to Mexicans, they affect all of us, and in fact, they affect even other communities of color that are not Latinos. And so, um, while the history is specific, th- the implications of that history mm. affect
1: all of us. Mm-hmm. You make a you make a great point, just the, the way that going very deep into American history Mexicans specifically Latinos generally kind of have been in this unusual position vis-a-vis the black white racial binary of the United States and that that did lead to a lot of really interesting consequences for for Mexicans specifically here in the US.
2: Yes, I um when we talk about this um this sort of black and white binary through which we understand race in America, um, I think it leaves, it leaves a lot of people out um, of those conversations about race. And at the same time, it really, I think, um, creates this dynamic where uh, non-black communities of color uh, seek whiteness as a form of protection, as a form of advancement, um, as, as I did, as I did. Um, and so, it it creates this really. I think you know. I, I go back to like the Mexican American War and the fact that Mexicans were given U.S. citizenship at a time when only white people could become citizens. And so there was no changes in the Constitution, no changes in the laws that said that as Mexicans we deserved this right. And I think ever since, ever since, our our, um, our standing in this country has been. Precarious. Um, we've, 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 we've always struggled with where do we fit in? You know, where do we fit in these conversations? Where do we fit in to the, um, the American the American context? Um, you know, I think about right now. We we finally were able to pass legislation to establish a Smithsonian museum of the American Latino. And that that passed uh, in the last Congress. And now we're still having to fight about where should this museum be placed? <laughs> and in, in, in our opinion, right, um, it, there's only one place for that for that museum. And that is on the National Mall, because if it is if it ends up being not on the National Mall, that continues to send the message that we Latinos belong someplace else, that we're American, but not quite. If we're not actually standing next to other American institutions. And so, you know, it's sort of like a continual fight to to say um, to preserve our own identity, our unique and beautiful cultures. And at the same time to say we are also American and we deserve all of the benefits of that Americanness.
3: Let's
1: bring in our first caller to talk with Julissa Arce, author of You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. Elaine from San Francisco, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. I just want to uh, share with you that while I was growing up in California, because I could spell and they used to beat me up and tease me in my neighborhood, dear, for sounding like a white girl. It's not a new thing every time you you can spell if you want to improve yourself because they say it's useless you're not going to go anywhere and for the most part they're probably true and the other thing is while i was in law school i realized they only hired one black in the law firm so we have struggled with this and my family has been here apparently from 1600 so i'm african-american and most I understand from my research, most people from Mexico have some black blood. And in this country, one drop means you're black. Mm-hmm. That's in my sense. So now we've got a different change and everybody wants to be or act white. If you don't, you are criticized by both whites and blacks. So that's all I can say on that. But yes, it's been a struggle. It's a struggle for, ever, for every immigrant, uh, ex- even at the beginning, for you know, whites had problems because you know the Italians didn't like this group or whatever from Europe. So um, that's all I have to say. It's yeah. not uncommon. It's not all unique, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Hey Elaine, thank you so much for sharing your experience. I'm also sorry for that. And just <laughs> that was heart. That sounds like it was a, a difficult place to be in when you were when you were a kid. You know, and Julissa she kind of gesturing at, at another side of this the ways that our own people can can get mad at us, can mm-hmm. can try and keep us in the community, but maybe in ways that are that are violent and and maybe in ways that are that are also traumatic.
2: Yeah. Um, well, there was there was there was one thing that she also said, right, that that like when we're trying to um and, and what she's saying about it not being a new thing, like a hundred percent absolutely. And that's one of the one of the biggest sort of um things that I really try to emphasize in the book and why there is so much history in the book, which is to say this history is not in the past, right? This history is very much alive and still affecting us today. Um And the other thing is about sort of like success and like when you're trying to improve yourself, that means somehow that you're trying to be closer to whiteness or that or that success can only be found in whiteness. And I think that there's a lot of really beautiful examples now of people who are being very successful, who have found great success, not outside of their communities, but because of their communities. And I think that's a beautiful thing that is starting to happen. Um, And now the question that you're asking about how our own people can use these things against us, like, absolutely, I, I mentioned in the book, how, you know, Spanish, like people have such uh, complex relationships Mm. with Spanish, because sometimes people will say, well, if you don't really speak Spanish, then you're not really Mexican, or you're not really Latino. I, um, I share in the book that I went to Mexico. Uh, to present my my underground American dream, the Spanish version, mm-hmm. which is called "Entre las Sombras del Sueño Americano," for the first time, and it was such a beautiful a beautiful experience. You know, two thousand people showed up. It was it, I, I'll never forget that day in October. Um, but at the end, this this the last book that I signed, the, the last book that I signed. Mm. Um, this woman had a list of all the things I said wrong in Spanish. Oh. And she's like, and you said this wrong and this wrong. And I, I just looked at her and I said, señora, <laughs> in Spanish, right? I said, señora, estoy haciendo lo mejor que puedo. Like I'm doing the best that I can, <laughs> which is what I tell people in English now. Like, you know, it's not easy to 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 move between two languages. Like my brain sometimes forgets a word in Spanish, forgets a word in English. And I think that it's incredibly unfair that we're doing that to each other. And Spanish cannot be the only way for us to claim our latinidad like we have to move beyond that we have to move past that because there's again there's a history of why so many people don't speak spanish um and
1: yeah we have to stop doing that to each other you know i mean i think about this with my i have such a conflicted and and difficult relationship with spanish i mean born in mexico came to the us at three sister was there till she was seven and the, the way I kind of have thought about this sometimes is, like, assimilation is something that happened to us. Like, by mm-hmm. the time we kind of woke up into, like, teenage dumb, young adult dumb, and we're sort of like, well, wait a second, wait. We, we want our Spanish. Mm-hmm. We're never going to have that native tongue the way we did, you know, at three and at seven. Um, right. And uh, there's so much pain in that. There's so much loss in that that I don't actually think—and I think it's actually hurt my attempts to better my Spanish as an adult because— If I don't say something perfectly, I feel such a surge of shame, you know? Right, right. Um, Wanted to ask you, you know, about alternatives to assimilation. Um, The the first would really be, you know, living here in the Bay, I feel like I find so much common cause with, you know, East Asian, South Asian, Filipino, Pacific Islanders, like all Mm -hmm. these other kind of non-Latino groups who are also here. And I was wondering if you see solidarity with these other groups both you know uh, other non-mexican latino groups but also you know this broader constellation of peoples is is that the alternative to assimilation or what is it for you
2: I think that Um, there should be solidarity between these groups because I think our experiences again I feel like there's this through line that sort of connects us and you know every English learner speaker I've ever met whether they're Mexican or Asian um, uh, or Southeast Asian um, we all have sort of the similar like horror stories you know about about how difficult it was to learn English and how Um, much more difficult it became when we were being judged by our teachers or by our peers. Um, And so there's some commonalities there. I I think that, so in the book, I give this analogy, um, you know, a snake, uh, a snake has to shed its skin to grow and to heal, but it remains a snake at its core. It's still a snake, even though it's like getting new skin all the time. Um, And, I wish that assimilation um, was like that, but it's not. I feel like assimilation asks us to become something else, something that we'll never quite actually become. And so for me, the alternative is choosing, getting to choose which parts um, of this new culture Do I want to embody? Do I want to take? Which parts of my own culture do I want to carry forward? And which parts maybe um, are better left in the past? And to me, it's about choosing. It's about celebrating. It's about celebrating where we come from. It's about celebrating the things that make us different, the things that make us unique, the things that only we can understand, you know, that, that we don't have to explain to, to other people. Um, and I think there's a really, a real a real beautiful thing. And, and for me, a big, a big part of rejecting assimilation has been to reclaim my history, to really understand it, to know that the roots that connect me to Mexico in many ways are the same roots that connect me to the United States and that allow me to claim this country as my own, even though I was not born here. Mm
1: -hmm. We're talking with Julissa Arce, author, speaker, and immigration rights advocate about her latest book, You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. She's also author of the memoirs My Underground American Dream and Someone Like Me. We've got a lot of calls uh, coming in, which we're going to get to after the break. People want to talk about what does assimilation mean to them, what it's cost them, what it's gained them. And what the alternatives are to this kind of old sociological concept of assimilation. <laughs> um, got some, I uh, wanna read a couple comments before we go to the break. Deborah writes Great show today on the assimilation experience. I'm the inheritor. Of an older immigrant experience, my grandmother came here from the Azores in the early 20th century, some islands in the Atlantic Ocean. She was rejected for a job because she's, quote, too dark and doesn't speak English. Assimilation was essential for her survival in America, but it meant that her grandchildren grew up with no sense of Portuguese culture or language. We really became invisible in a way. I'm struggling to learn Portuguese now in my 60s, in part to honor her experience. Good luck with learning that, Deborah. Iris writes, "Uh, assimilation cost me a linguistic connection to my culture. My mother's generation was intentionally not taught Arabic. And Curtis writes, there's no greater creator of inequality than assimilation. Brown people will never achieve equality so long as we accept that we must somehow be the brown version of a successful white person. We must fight for equality and look at assimilation for what it is, a social and professional barrier to achieving our American dream. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Julissa Arce, author, speaker, and immigration rights advocate about her latest book, You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. Want to get you uh, some more calls here. Baltazar in San Jose, welcome.
4: I am. All
1: right, thank you for having me. First of all, I I was going to make some comments, and I just want to say thank you to both of you. Alexis, I have no idea you were born in Mexico. I feel (laughs) way closer to you in this NPR than ever. And Alexis, I'm really, really, sorry, um, Julissa, really excited to read your book. Both of you have given me a huge new wave of energy and motivation to continue doing what I do. I work for the United States Congress, so I was consistent, consistently going to what you felt, and now it's just different. And again, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> what a nice call. Julissa, thank you for bringing out the people. <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you. That's, uh, that's, really, that's really nice. Thank you so
1: much. Um, And, Julie, you know, before we went into the break, there were some also some interesting comments about some of these Mm -hmm. older uh, immigrant experiences. You know, we hear about it a lot uh, with Jewish families, with Italian families, with Irish families. Um, Do you see the experiences of those older, even Southern European immigrants as being really distinct from from our own story?
2: In some ways, um, uh, it's a little bit of a cautionary tale. For me, uh, because uh, you know, in, in the 1920s, um, white white was not you know white people were not what white people are today. Right, uh, whiteness has been invented, and uh, many Irish people, many Italian people, many Eastern European people had to give up their language and their culture in order to obtain. Their whiteness, and now we have white people, just just white people. I, I share the story in the book about um, going to a, a party and this this woman asking us uh, where we were from, and my friend said I'm from Brownsville, Texas, and she said no, but 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 where are you where where are you from from, which is something every Latino has heard, and. Um, and my friend said, "No, I'm I'm from from Brownsville." She's like, "But where are your parents from?" And he's like, "Brownsville." And so this keeps going on for a little bit. Um, and then I ask her where she's from, and she says she's from New Jersey. And I said, "Well, where are your parents from?" And she says, "From New Jersey." So I keep asking the same question she's asking me, and and finally she says, "Well, I'm I'm white. Like we're just American, right?" And I think that to me that's so sad that that you don't know whether you're Italian. Or Dutch or like you know what kind of what kind of white person are you um and 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 I don't want that to happen to us you know I don't I don't ever want my kids and I don't know in in seven or eight generations to for them to say like they don't know where they're from you know so in some ways I feel like um it's sad that Uh, so many of these cultures and traditions were lost and that people had to give them up. Um, And there was a comment about how, you know, we have to become like the the Brown um, successful version of a white person. And I would just say, I agree with that, except for the part of like still trying to be a version of something else. Like we should just be our own successful people. um, And we should stop trying to seek success and protection and advancement, um, in proximity to whiteness, because by the way, it has never, ever, ever worked for us.
1: Let's bring in Miriam from, uh, San Leandro. Welcome.
5: Hi, um, this is Miriam, um, from San Leandro. Uh, Julissa, I just so excited to, um, to hear you speak. You're so amazing. My question is, um, I'm a content creator around Spanish and body positivity. And I grew up in Mexico, Mexican American in Mexico. And because of the power dynamics that are different, of course, from what you share in your book, I was able to have both languages and moving to the U.S. and sort of having this learning experience of how Latinx people here have not had that privilege. And you talk about in your book about how you sacrifice your Spanish for assimilation. I wonder what we do now. You know, I I have a kid who's four years old and I push for Spanish, you know, Spanish only in the home. And I have a lot of privilege because I speak both languages, but I face so much, so many barriers, right? There's the barriers are still there, but like, I wonder now for you, if you were to have kids, like how, how are Latinos and Latinx people like really raising their kids with Spanish that they were not able to have? Thank you,
1: man. Uh, Julie said, so "I want you to answer this, also. But I just want to say, my kids go to go to immersion school, and n- literally nothing makes me happier than hearing their beautiful Spanish. Like absolutely nothing in this world. <laughs> so for anybody who's out there wondering if they can, they want their kids to speak Spanish when they themselves have their broken American uh, <laughs> Spanish. Yes, the answer to that is uh, yes." But it's also very, very difficult, you know, um, they're either expensive or hard to access and other things, but Lisa, what's Mm -hmm. your, what's your answer to, to this question?
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, part of it, part of it has to be that the, the pressure, um, shouldn't fall on the individual. Like some of these things are structural and so, and, and it's exactly what you just mentioned, right? Um, if, if immersion programs are available um, for some people like they should be available for all people mm-hmm. um, uh, schools uh, because I think I think part of it is that um, as an ESL learner I always felt like people viewed me as though I was deficient in some way you know as though I wasn't smart because I didn't speak English and I think that if instead we approached learning English from a position of beauty of like how beautiful it's going to be that when you're done learning you'll speak two languages if we in the process of teaching kids to speak english we also encourage them to keep their spanish or whatever their native language is we will have a lot more bilingual people in this country so part of it is um yes there's things that we as individuals can do but the other part of it is we have to push um, the systems and the structures to accommodate for that. Um, I I I love that there are. You know, there's a company called Little Libros, and um, and two quick things about that. The founder is my friend, and I'm an investor in the company. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so full disclosure. Um, um, but Little Libros is this beautiful company, um, and she started that company because she went to a traditional publisher, and they told her that um, that. Latino parents don't read to their children. So there wasn't a big market for it. So she started her own publishing company um, where she, every single one of the books um, that they put out are bilingual books to read to your children to, and and by the way, many people who aren't Latino parents buy the books because they want their kids to know a second language. Um, You know, so, so so some of the things is like what we can do. Some of the things are things that have to change systemically.
1: Yeah. You know, Miriam, I also just wanted to say, too, watching how difficult, you know, a lot of parents in our school, there's a lot of native speakers trying to get their kids to continue speaking Spanish. I, watching how hard it has been has actually been very healing for me and let me let go of some of the anger I had towards my parents for mm. for not keeping it going with me. But just because the like you're indicating, Julissa, the structures of the society push us away. So the kids... End up answering in English, even though all the kids around them also know Spanish. I mean, it's a very it's it's so so tough. So um, I really I wish you like really the the best on on that project and um, and thank you so much for that comment. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. Other, you know, at one point in one of your earlier answers, you said, you know, it's sad to me that people don't know, like, kind of what kind of white person they are. There's Mm -hmm. another dimension, though, that really separates a lot of different white people in the United States. And it's one that I think is hard for people to talk about, which are these sort of class dynamics. And, of course, there's long-running conflicts inside and outside BIPOC groups about how to think about that relationship between Mm -hmm. race, ethnicity, and class. How, How do you see that and how do you think it plays into your ideas about uh, rejecting assimilation?
2: Sure. So certainly class and classism exist, race and racism exist, and they intersect. For sure they intersect. But one does not negate the other. Right. And white privilege is not something that a white person can, 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 can choose. It's, mm-hmm. it's in society. That they have it, right? That they have a privilege because they are white, and I think that you know, one of the um, one of the biggest things that I talk about in the book is um, the scapegoating of immigrants, right? That immigrants are constantly blamed for the issues in this country. If there is unemployment, it's because the Mexicans and the immigrants are taking your job. If you know, um, you're not making if 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 wages have stayed stagnant, is because all these uh, companies have taken their uh, companies to Mexico, and then the people get mad at the Mexicans for having those jobs, not at the corporations for moving their factories, not at the factory owner who is putting their profits ahead of your health and your job and your well being, and so. Part, part of the realization that I think a lot of white people have to deal with, that they have to wrestle with, is whether or not they want to continue to scapegoat uh, immigrants instead of looking at what the real causes of these issues that they're experiencing are. Now, the issues that, that you know, poor white people, impoverished white people experience, those are real issues. They're real Of course, you know, they're real, but we have to look, we have to investigate, they have to, I should say, they have to investigate further who's responsible for them. And part of it is, you know, I, I personally don't want to do the work of, like, continuing to explain to, to white people why I am not their enemy, why I am not their problem. I am not the problem. Um, They have to do that for themselves and they have to be willing to do it because while um, whiteness and white supremacy uh, keeps people of color down, it certainly also keeps impoverished white people down. Um, But they are the ones who have to deal with it and wrestle with it. And they are the ones who should be asked this question more often.
1: James, uh, listener James writes in to say, As a bilingual son of immigrants, I also favored English as a child to fit in at school and gain approval from teachers. I learned to appreciate my heritage through culture and travel, but I don't think the U.S. is any different than Japan or even Mexico. I wouldn't expect to be successful in those countries without assimilation of language and culture. I would ask the author what her definition of success is and why code switching is not an option.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, in the book, one of the first chapters, I talk about how I learned the importance of whiteness in Mexico. Um, white supremacy and the structures of white supremacy are not, um, are not confined within the borders of the United States. They exist everywhere in the world. Uh, these structures and colorism and racism and classism exist everywhere. And that's often something that I hear, right? When people say, well, if I went to go live in Mexico, wouldn't I need to learn how to speak Spanish? Wouldn't I need to assimilate to Mexican culture? Um, And I think that there's something that is missed. And I'm not, you know, I don't know if the the person asking that question is a white person or or not, but more often than not, the people who ask me that question are white people. And um, I think that they're missing something, which is that there is a power dynamic when you are a white person living in another country, first of all, you don't even call yourselves an immigrant, you call yourselves an expat <laughs> you know like just the what you call yourself when you are living in a different country already tells me that there is a um a a that there is a power dynamic um that needs to be understood and needs to be taken into into account um certainly you know. I did do a lot of code switching and a lot of people of color have to do have to code switch uh, when they are in the workplace and when they are at home. And what I am trying to say is that when we do that, um, we lose part of ourselves when we have to code switch, because why should I have to be a different person? Um, in the office than I am at home. Like, why should I have to leave my hoop earrings behind and put on my pearl earrings in order to be seen as acceptable um, in in the office? Um, I think we we need to push those boundaries and we need to create environments where people can bring their full entire selves because by the way, the more that we do that, the more that it's gonna benefit not just us as people, but companies as
1: well. Want to get to a few more of these comments, tons of them uh, rolling in. Jackie writes, I'm really enjoying this conversation as an American with Mexican roots. Totally relate with her identity. I look indigenous but speak only English. Andres uh, writes in to say, this grief of forced separation from our bloodlines and cultures and consequent assimilation is really resonant for me as a Latinx indigenous person who is transracially adopted into a white family. The government's actually curated assimilation through adoption, and I always feel a need to highlight the adoptee experience in conversations around culture preservation and who holds this privilege to, quote, know who you are.
2: That is really an amazing comment. And I'm so glad that they made that comment Um, because that there's, there's a whole history history, right. Of, 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 um, Native American Mm -hmm. children being stolen from their parents and taken into Americanization schools. It's a, it's a horrible history, um, that, that, that many people do not know about. Um, and, and, um, It's something that we need,
1: you know, we need to learn more about because it's a horrible history. Yeah. Uh, Zoe writes, thank you for what your guest said about speaking Spanish being the measure for being Latina. I was born in uh, Puerto Rico and was speaking Spanish at home and English outside of the home. My children did not because they were raised in a community which in the 80s had few Latinos. Yet they are made to feel they are missing a requirement to claim their heritage. Uh, and Aaron writes, and then you can respond to these if you like said. Aaron writes, what is the difference between a, mi- a minority person assimilating into a majority culture versus a majority person assimilating into a minority culture? My background's in Polynesian cultures, and it's still considered very inappropriate to bring your uh, malahini or outsider values, and it is considered most respectful of the existing culture to assimilate into the community rather than rebuff the local culture.
2: Yeah, and that second comment. Um, just uh, what I would say is that just because we have done something a certain way for a long time doesn't mean that we can't change it. And um, and there there is a difference between um, me as a as a person of color um, assimilating into white. Whiteness, because I don't really know what white culture is, so I just you know whiteness, um, and a white person trying to quote unquote assimilate uh, into um, into Mexican culture, that would be cultural appropriation, and it is very different. And it goes back to what I said earlier about the power dynamics. Um, now, it it doesn't mean that we negate sort of like the fact that there is a thing about being respectful of other communities and other cultures and the way that they do things, um, and 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 to try to to be, um, yeah, respectful of, of, of those things. But, you know, for me, in my experience, both both my personal experience and what I have learned through the history that I have re- that I researched for years in order to write this book is that seeking whiteness, seeking proximity to whiteness, seeking um, belonging and success in whiteness, has never worked out for us. So I am saying we need to stop doing things the way we've always done them and create new spaces, new structures, new systems that serve us and that are good for us and that do not replicate the systems of white supremacy of the past.
1: Thank you so much. We've been talking with Julissa Arce, author of You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for more after the break.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.